Over the last 50 years, the Messianic Jewish community has grown from one or two Messianic synagogues around the world to over 500. This has been parallel with a growing number of Gentile Christians who have come to appreciate the Jewish roots of their new covenant faith, and a tide of scholarship in the field of New Testament studies has emphasized a Jewish Jesus, a Jewish Paul, a Jewish New Testament, and a first-century community of Yeshua-believing Jews and Gentiles who remained within the orbit of Judaism. Just recently, I received an email that Pope Francis is supportive of the Messianic Jewish Roman Catholic dialogue that I have had the privilege of being a part of over the past several years in Rome. And he wants us to press forward in taking it to another level. These are historic developments, and we have much to be thankful for to the Lord. At the same time, we are now starting to see a tide develop in the other direction, both within the wider body of Messiah and within the world of New Testament studies. It is a wave of transference theology that argues that through the coming of the Messiah, God's covenant relationship with the Jewish people has been reconfigured in such a way that Israel's covenant blessings, Israel's covenant responsibilities, and Israel's covenant calling have all been transferred to the church as a whole. Or to put it in more politically correct language, Israel's God-given blessings, responsibilities, and calling have all been universalized. In the mid-2nd century, around the year 140 CE, Justin Martyr, also known as Saint Justin, articulated this transference view when he wrote in his dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, quote, Justin said, and hence you, Trypho, ought to understand that the gifts formerly among your nation, that is, the nation of Israel, have been transferred to us Christians, unquote. Perhaps the most articulate proponent of transference theology in the 21st century is N.T. Wright, a British churchman and New Testament scholar who has spent the last 40 years writing on the subject of the relationship between the church and Israel in Paul's theology. He writes in his Oxford doctoral thesis, The Messiah and the People of God, quote, in Romans chapter, chapters 5 through 8, Paul develops the picture of the church in terms of belonging to Israel. This transfer is achieved in two stages. First, Israel's calling, responsibilities, and privileges have been taken over by the Messiah himself alone. Second, what is true of the Messiah is reckoned to be true of his people. Wright continues, in him, that is, in the Messiah, all believers without distinction of race inherit all 
that was Israel's. Paul, in line with Old Testament prophecy, claims that God's glory has been taken away from Israel according to the flesh and given to the community of the new covenant. The Christian is the true Jew. The first five verses of the chapter, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, thus set out the grounds of assurance in terms of the transfer of Israel's privileges to the church. What Israel should have done, the Messiah has done, has done alone. Having therefore taken Israel's task, he, and hence his people, inherit Israel's privileges. Right continues. We have seen that Paul explicitly and consciously transfers blessings from Israel according to the flesh to the Messiah and thence to the church. In the same way, Wright continues, Galatians 2 through 4 argues precisely that the worldwide believing church is the true family of Abraham and that those who remain as quote-unquote Israel according to the flesh are in fact the theological descendants of Hagar and Ishmael, with no title to the promises. It is not, therefore, without a touch of bitter irony, reminiscent of Philippians 3, verse 2 and following, that he, Paul, transfers the name Israel to the church." Unquote. I have shared this long quote with you from N.T. Wright because I want you to see that transference theology is alive and well in our generation. In fact, it is gaining momentum, both in its classical form, as espoused by Justin Martyr and later church leaders, but also in more recent variations like One Law Theology, which argues that all Gentiles are supposed to live like Jews, as the Judaizers in Galatians maintained, thus resulting in the erasure of Jewish boundary markers of identity and the ultimate elimination of the Jewish people as a distinct and enduring people by God's design. At the storm center of this, of this transference theology debate, which has been raging since at least the second century CE, is the question of what the Apostle Paul teaches on this subject. Since we are a messianic synagogue and believe that God's gifts and calling to the Jewish people are irrevocable, it is important that all of us are able to give an answer to those who ask us for the reason why we believe God is faithful to Israel. Therefore, today, in the ser and in the sermon two weeks from now, I would like to share with you from Paul's um, writings the biblical basis for our view that God's promises to Israel are yes and amen. Today, I have three points. First, God keeps his promises. Second, and by the way, that's a promise. <laughs> Second, the gifts and the call of God to Israel are irrevocable. And thirdly, God's faithfulness to Israel is the guarantee 
that he will be faithful to you and to me. Let's begin with number one, God keeps his promises. There was once a businessman named Sam who was driving home after a long sales trip, and he saw a hitchhiker with a cow on the side of the road. Sam stopped the car, and the hitchhiker approached the window and said, will you give me a ride to Richmond, sir? Sam was amazed and said, that's where I'm going, and I'm happy to give you a ride, but you'll have to leave your cow here. The hitchhiker said, I promise you that if I tie my cow to the back of your car, she will keep up and not slow down. I promise, he said. The businessman reluctantly agreed. Then the hitchhiker tied the cow to the back bumper. They started out, and Sam took the car up to 10 miles per hour. He looked in the mirror, and the cow seemed to be trotting along. 20 miles per hour, 30 miles per hour, 40, and the cow was keeping up. The hitchhiker looked over to Sam and assured him that the cow would be fine. I promise, he said, my cow will not slow you down. A promise is a promise. Sam took the car up to 55 miles per hour, and still the cow was looking very comfortable. Sam watched the speedometer go to 65, 75, and finally 90 miles per hour. By the way, young people, this is not something you should do. Just to let you know at home. Sam looked back, and finally, the cow seemed to be getting tired at 90 miles per hour. He then turned to the hitchhiker and said, your cow seems tired. Her tongue is sticking out. I don't think you're going to be able to keep your promise. The hitchhiker said, is it sticking out on the left or the right? The left side, Sam said. With a smile, the hitchhiker said, well, you better pull over. She's trying to pass you. <laughs> like this hitchhiker, God keeps his promises. <laughs> I've got to be careful not to look at David Wayne because David always makes me laugh when I look at Like this hitchhiker, God keeps his promises. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 and verses 23 through 24, he says, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Yeshua the Messiah, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Messiah. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 
I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Why did Paul write this passage? It is because some of the Corinthians were accusing him of not keeping his word. Here Paul is saying that he always seeks to keep his word. And even though he didn't visit them on his return trip, as he said he would, it was his full intention from the beginning to do so. His decision not to visit the Corinthians on the way back was, not, was only because he had their best interests in mind. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that though he did not keep his word in this one instance, God always keeps his word. And he gets this point across by saying it three times. First, Paul says, Ne'aman ha'elohim, God is faithful. Let's all say that together. Ne'aman ha'elohim. One more time. Ne'aman ha'elohim. One more time. Ne'aman ha'elohim. God is faithful. Second, Paul says that Yeshua, the Son of God, was not a yes and no man, but the Messiah always kept his word. And finally, Paul says that no matter how many promises God has made, and there are thousands of them, they are all yes in Messiah, which means that God fulfills all of his promises through the Messiah. How should we respond to this truth that God keeps his promises? Paul says that our response should be a chorus of praise to God in worship. We should all say in unison, Amen. Let's all say that together. Amen. One more time. Amen. Paul believed that God keeps his promises, all of them without exception. And so we say, Amen. It is so. When our family was living in Los Angeles and we were considering moving to Richmond, one of the, th one of the things that Miriam asked was, Daddy, if we move to Richmond, since it is so close to New York, would you bring me to a Broadway show? And I promised Miriam that I would. The other day, as we were talking about our summer plans, Miriam reminded me of my promise and said, Daddy, we still haven't gone to that Broadway show. How about if we see the Broadway show on our way to Japan this year, since we usually fly out from New York City? I told Miriam that we would definitely consider it. Why? Because I made a promise. And I need to keep it, just as our God is a promise-keeping God. Yes, sometimes he takes years even centuries, to fulfill his promises. But he always does so because he is faithful. And this brings us to our second point. The gifts and the call of God to Israel are irrevocable. God keeps all of his promises, 
And this is, this is especially the case when it comes to his children. As we talked about last week, the Jewish people are God's children in a unique way. They are his firstborn. Paul explicitly affirms in his letter to the Romans that God is faithful to his promises to his people Israel. He writes in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, he says, I speak the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel. Theirs is, present tense, the adoption as sons. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the Torah, the temple worship, and the promises. As we mentioned last Shabbat, Paul writes this passage in the present tense. He is saying that his people, the nation of Israel as a whole, have not embraced the Messiah. And so he's pained by that. Nevertheless, they, the Jewish people, remain in the present tense, Israel. We can uh, take this off the screen now. Thank you. They remain God's firstborn among his children. They remain in covenant relationship with him. They remain recipients of the Torah's commandments, and they remain inheritors of the promises. There is no indication that, as N.T. Wright puts it, quote, God's glory has been taken away from Israel according to the flesh and given to the community of the new covenant, unquote, in a, quote, transfer of Israel's privileges to the church, unquote, so that, quote, those who remain as Israel according to the flesh are in fact the theological descendants of Hagar and Ishmael with no title to the promises, unquote. This is what the British call poppycock. That is rubbish or nonsense. This is confirmed in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul directly addresses the supersessionists of his day and says, I ask then, did God reject his people? Absolutely he did. Is that what it says? What does it say? By no means. That's right. Here Paul's addressing that very question, and he doesn't say, absolutely, God rejected his people. He transferred everything over to the church. No, he says, by no means. Beshum penim lo. Paul is basically saying here, are you crazy? Where did you get that ridiculous idea? God remains fully faithful to his people. And this is exactly what he says later in the chapter. He writes in Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, where he says, as far as election is concerned, they, the Jewish people, are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. The Greek word that Paul uses here for gifts is charismata, 
a term that likely points back to the list of gifts the, uh, the Lord, from the Lord that we read about in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, that Israel had in the present tense. These included being children of God in a unique sense as his firstborn, covenant relationship with God, Torah commandments from God, and promises from God. The Greek word that Paul uses for calling is klesis, and is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, where he says that his rule in all the congregations is for the circumcised, that is, Jews, to remain in their distinctive calling, klesis, as Jews, even as it is his rule for the uncircumcised, that is, Gentiles, to remain in their distinct calling, or klesis, as Gentiles. Finally, the Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 11, verse 29, for irrevocable, is ameta maleta, and literally means without regret. In the context of Romans 11, verses 17 through 31, where Paul is talking about Israel's unbelief and disobedience, what Paul is saying is that no matter how much Israel blows it in these areas, no matter how much Israel sins, no matter how much Israel disobeys, God is not going to take away his charismata and klesis, his gifts and calling, from the Jewish people, as the transference view argues. Hashem has settled the matter in his own mind. He will remain faithful to Israel even when Israel is not faithful to him. Paul echoes this understanding when he writes a few chapters later in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, where he says, and let's all read this one together, for I tell you that the Messiah has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. <clears throat> The purpose of sending the Messiah was not to undermine or revoke God's promises to Israel or transfer them to a different entity, as N.T. Wright contends. Rather, God's purpose was to confirm his promises to the patriarchs, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, speaking of Abraham, how do we know from the Bible that Abraham was a pretty smart guy? Do you know? It's because we're told in Genesis chapter 11 and 12 that he knew a lot. Uh, get it? Abraham and Lot, he knew a lot. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Returning to Romans chapter 15, verse 8. The Greek word in this passage for confirm, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, is bebiosai, and means to make firm, to establish something. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 15 that Hashem has sent the Messiah to strengthen the Jewish people so that Israel will be able to fulfill the promises God made to the patriarchs. What are these promises that Paul is referring to? These are the land and seed promises that the Lord gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
The land promise was that the Lord would give Abraham's descendants possession of the whole land of Canaan that stretched from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The seed promise was that God would make Abraham's seed, that is, his descendants, into a great nation as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore that he would be their God, and they would be his people, that the Lord would make an everlasting covenant with them, that he would bless them and bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them, and that through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all nations would be blessed. That is what it says in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. These are the promises to the patriarchs that the Messiah came to confirm. And this brings us to my last point, and that is that God's faithfulness to Israel is the guarantee that he will be faithful to you and to me. I remember when I was in high school and I came across a book entitled The Promises of God. It was just page after page of promises in the scriptures that the Lord has made to his children. One of the promises that I remember jumping off the page and into my heart was Yeshua's words to his disciples in the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, where he says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, and let's all say this together, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I have always remembered that promise and taken comfort in it. Moreover, Yeshua has been faithful to keep it. Even during the most difficult times in my life, I have felt Yeshua's presence in me and around me. It is no wonder that Isaiah refers to the Messiah as Immanuel, God with us. Another one of my favorites was Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, which says, and let's all say this one together, trust in Adonai with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I remember reading that promise and praying one day, Lord, I'm going to live my life trusting in you and acknowledging you in all my ways. In turn, may you make my path straight so that I may meet my future wife. And guess what? Several years later, that straight path took me to Japan and straight to that beautiful lady over there. So you see, God keeps his promises. Another promise that I remember reading in that Promises of God book, which I have recalled many times in my life, is Yochanan's words in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, where he says, through the leading of the Spirit, and let's all say this uh, scripture together and the promise that's included within it, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I have recited this promise so many times that I know it from memory. Many Messiah followers know this passage, but not everyone realizes how connected this passage is to God's faithfulness to Israel. You see, if God is not faithful to Israel, if he does not keep his promises to the Jewish people, then there is no reason for us to believe that he will keep his promises to us. Like his promise to, fig- to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's faithfulness to Israel in the past, the present, and the future, despite Israel's sins and disobedience and failings, is what gives us confidence as individuals that God will be faithful to us despite our failings. It's that simple. If God keeps his promises to Israel, he will keep his promises to us. His promise to be with us always, to lead us in straight paths, to forgive us when we confess our sins, and the hundreds and thousands of other promises that Hashem makes to his children in this truly extraordinary book that we call the Word of God. Today we have talked about how God's promises are yes, God's promises to Israel are yes and amen. And I had three points. First, God keeps his promises. Second, the gifts and the calling of God to Israel are irrevocable. And third, God's faithfulness to Israel is the guarantee that he will be faithful to you and to me. Let's pray. Avinu